Okay, of course I... Welcome to Recipe for Success. My name is Nancy Giacalone, and I'm very excited to have as my very special guest today, Dr. Aaron Kalik. Um, for those of you joining us for the very first time, this podcast is about people that are doing great things in different areas of their life or careers or for the community or in business. Aaron happens to be doing it for in a lot of those different areas. But one thing that I noticed, um, because I'm an avid cook, I like to cook and bake. And it really dawned on me one time, I was probably on a Saturday making something, who knows what. And I was thinking about the fact of how much cooking is related to everything else that we do in our lives. It, it really depends on the ingredients you put in, but there's always that very special ingredient or technique that is critical to the outcome of whatever it is you're trying to make and really isn't the same thing true in business and in life. So um, again, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Erin Kalik. She is a direct primary care provider here in um, the lovely Pacific Northwest. She's actually in Tacoma, Washington, just across the bridge from me. So I'd like to start it off by Erin um, allowing you to introduce yourself to and tell your audience a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Well, thank you for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, I hadn't thought about your cooking analogy till I heard you say that, and it really does seem to ring true uh, the more I think about it. I am, gosh, I am a small town girl at heart. I was raised in uh, Stanwood, Washington, so up near the Tulips, and we didn't have even a stoplight at that time. So that makes me feel older too now <laughs> when I drive through it. Um, and, and honestly, I was a nanny for this family that I adored and became kind of one of their kids almost. And when it was time to decide what to do, she said, well, I didn't even know if that was when, but she said, you'd make a great pediatrician. And that was the first time I'd really ever even heard the term because my small town only had uh, family docs. And then I went off to college, stayed in the Pacific Northwest. I did a great books uh, college tour for three years down in California, which was pretty fabulous. Um, and we actually really celebrated the rain at that point uh, with French press and the whole nine yards because it was infrequent uh, instead of regularly happening. And then I, my training brought me to Tacoma, the jewel of the South Puget Sound. <laughs> That's one way of describing it. Uh -huh. And my husband wasn't a husband yet. Uh, he agreed to move down here with me. And after school, we toured the world a little bit and then settled down. And now we're here with three kids and quote unquote real jobs. And, you know, we added a puppy for good measure. You got to add a puppy, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, not during the pandemic like everyone no. else, but yeah. after the pandemic. If there wasn't enough chaos with two full-time jobs and three children, a puppy just rounds it all out. Um, so I'm really curious about what drew you to medicine. Is that something that you always knew you wanted to do, or is it something that you kind of grew into? Uh, the latter. Uh, so my my background, uh, people joke with my mom, ask my mom how my siblings and I, I'm the middle of three, 
how she got us all to go to college because my parents didn't go to college. They were, my mom was a waitress. My dad was a day laborer. Um, they worked hard and they taught us, you know, a work ethic for sure. Uh, but we, yeah, we all studied and went to college, but my mom says the most surprising thing any of her kids did was me heading off into science and math because those weren't my natural strengths. I'm not sure if I should admit that. Um, no, please do. I mean, I think that that's what people like to know. I mean, people want to know, okay, especially if it's a doctor, tell me, I mean, people want to know about their doctor because the doctor wants to know about them. So I think it creates more trust. Good. Let's go with that. So um, yeah, because we, I was more naturally adept, I guess, at, you know, history, English, writing, all that. And people thought I was going to either be a stay-at-home mom of six, uh, or I was going to be a teacher or some combination thereof. So going into medicine was uh, was not the trajectory anyone thought I would have. And, and honestly, I think it's it was that that um, who turned out to be a mentor telling me, you know, you'd make an excellent pediatrician. And I remember telling her, people like us don't become doctors. Uh, so I, I somehow got through that and got over that. And um, I really loved science and math when I, when I let myself really do it. And, you know, you go in the pre-med route in college and I enjoyed the people that were there too. Um, and I think I just, I mean, I honestly think maybe my parents instilled too good a work ethic because I think there was some element to this is extra challenging. So it must be more worth it somehow. Right. Like, yeah, I didn't learn how to hit the easy button right off the bat. Well, um, I think that is a very good quality to have. I'm not going to lie. So one of the things that I really want to, everybody to understand is that you are a, in my um, industry in lingo, we call it a DBC doc, which mm -hmm. simply means a direct primary care provider. And that means that you have a different type of relationship with your clients than um, a corporate medicine doctor. So in other words, they generally are on a subscription or membership basis where they pay a flat monthly fee and they have unlimited, we'll say unlimited access to you. And then that includes certain things. What attract, this is a popular concept in other areas of the country, it's still pretty new out here in the Pacific Northwest. And so you're kind of a trailblazer doing it, um, especially in, in our area. But what drew you to that? Well, it's interesting too, that it's, um, that it's less common here because I actually started in Seattle. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, and honestly, I mean, the short answer is, I couldn't continue to do medicine in the corporate structure. I, uh, I was having all sorts of guilt about the idea of leaving medicine after only practicing it for 10 years at that time, 12 years, I guess, uh, you know, because I spent so much time, energy, money, you know, learning how to do it. And I, um, and I loved helping patients, but I was really struggling with, uh, the corporate structure because I, you know, in a nutshell, I couldn't take care of people the way I wanted to and yeah. the way I thought they deserved. And I was getting more aware of that, uh, based on others. Actually, I, since I did, uh, my fellowship here in Tacoma, I worked in the hospital a lot. So I had a lot of nurses as patients and when they could not get through 
on the phones. You know, they would try all the quote unquote right ways to reach me. Uh, and then when that failed, they would text me and say, you know, your office says you can't see me for three months. Is that really true? And then I would say, oh, no, that's not true. I have an opening this afternoon or I have an opening tomorrow. And then I would go tell the MA, hey, so-and-so is going to squeeze in. And then I would see the look on their face just, you know, uh, <laughs> because they would know that I was breaking the rules I didn't even know existed, right? Like you have to have a certain number of those spots open. You can't fill them until 3 p.m. the day before. I was accepting a call at one instead of, <laughs> I mean, you know. Um, and for me, a couple of the moments that said, you know, this is just not gonna, this isn't sustainable. Um, a really, a patient that I was very fond of that I'd known for a long time, I got notification that she had switched to uh, the other big system in town. And I immediately thought, what, you know, that couldn't be me. I knew we had a good relationship. So I called her and asked what happened. And she had been in a car accident. She had neck pain. She knew I worked part-time. So she she told them she was willing to wait the till the following week to see me. And they told her I couldn't possibly see her for two months. And then they told her that they had asked me and I agreed I couldn't see her for two months. Um, and I hadn't been asked. And I thought, how many times is this sort of thing happening? You know, where um, I'm not think I don't think that anyone was malicious and, and lying. I think they were just following those rules, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I don't mean to intend and insinuate that that they were being mean or anything like that. And no, they, no. They were just following the corporate structure. And it was at that point that I realized the corporate structure doesn't allow humans to, it doesn't always allow humans to do the right thing. I was called by a new patient this week who said, I was referred to you because my mom's 94. She's been in bed for a week. We called her primary care doctor to get a hospice referral. And they said, we haven't seen her in two years. So she'll need an office visit to get that referral. And I thought, I mean, I just get chills, right? I mean, here these people are caring for their elderly mother. And what are they? She's literally bed bound. How is she going to go have an office visit to get the hospice referral that she deserves? So yeah, it's crazy. It was stuff you know, like that. You know, you brought up a point um, at the beginning of this that, um, you know, I almost kind of forgot about. But the fact is direct primary care did start in Seattle. Yeah. Um, and it was very successful for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then that organization disbanded. And unfortunately, when it disbanded, we kind of lost, nobody else was trying it out here. And so then it kind of uh, made a resurgence on the East Coast with independent mm -hmm. practices. And it's really had a big uptake on the East Coast and South. There's a ton of direct primary care in the Florida area. Yeah. Again, they tend to be pocketed around elderly populations, because those are people that really need that additional attention and care. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that was a really good point. And then another thing that I was, um, I found interesting that you said, because I always filter everything through my own experiences and how you and I met was I was looking for a direct primary care doctor because I was so fed up with corporate medicine and not being able to get any time with a doctor. Mm -hmm. And even when I waited three months to actually get in to see the new doctor in the same practice that I'd been assigned to because the other one left and I had yeah. to have another new patient intake. Right. It was, it, it's always, they're trying to move you through the system as quickly as possible and no disrespect to anybody in the system, because I don't think anybody has ill intent, but they right. are following the rules so closely that the first question that you were asked when you called the office is, what kind of insurance do you have? 
They don't say, how are you? What are you calling for? And show any level of concern. Not that they don't have any, but it's just, again, that's the script they're given and they forget that they're talking to people. And so I think that that's what direct primary care is bringing back is the family doctor, somebody you can actually have a relationship with because a year ago, my doctor, if I passed him, if I, if I tapped him on the shoulder in the grocery store, he would have zero idea who I was. <laughs> my doctor now knows who I am. That's great. Um, you know, I have a relationship, but it's, it, it is a very um, fine balance. So you really are in a unique situation because your husband is mm-hmm. also in medicine and he's on the corporate side. Right. So um, did he think that you were absolutely off your rocker when you decided that you wanted to um, go down this path? Well, I, the, in a nutshell, yes, probably. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, he's careful, right? With, <laughs> with his words. He says, um, he and I are hugely different humans. Um you know, uh, yin yang, I guess. Right. So he is an internal medicine doc, uh, and internists, I joke are the engineers of medicine. You know, they want all the details. They want all the numbers. They want all the security. Um, not all of them, obviously that's a huge, but, but for him, for sure, you know, and so me doing this essentially entrepreneurial thing, uh, is at the very least scary to him, if not downright crazy. And at the same time, he's been really supportive because our, even though we worked for the same organization, our um, experiences within the organization were very different. You know, he has a corner office with a view of Mount Rainier and he can ride his bike to work and his office is big enough to park it in there. And he has a dedicated nurse who knows him and knows their patient panel and He's, you know, he's an amateur photographer. He's been able to put his art up and so make it really his space. Um, and, and so that part has been good for him. Uh, but he recognized that that wasn't my experience. And a couple things happened within corporate medicine um, in the pandemic that were, um that were just pivotal. And so even, even he was able to say, wow, yeah, this is not going to work for both of us to work for this organization. So uh, he looks forward to me being uh, successful in this and retiring him. Awesome. (laughs) I love that. He loves being a doctor. And the other thing that corporate medicine does for him is, uh, and, and maybe I'll be able to do this in the DPC world as well, but he has been able to teach residents and teach students and he loves teaching um, and that was one of the things with corporate medicine. I loved teaching, but I got moved to a small enough um, area that I wasn't, they told me I couldn't accept students anymore because there just wasn't enough physical space. So uh, he and I hope to um, continue that in the DPC realm. But for now, that that part of his job, he really loves as well. So I love that. So again, most people um, really have no experience with a direct primary care doctor. They are, you know, if they're older, they remember the family doctor. They remember the doctor that, you know, knew all their kids, their relatives, and, you know, they had that personal experience. So can you explain the difference between what we experience now if we go to a major medical system, I won't name names, um, and and see a doctor versus what the experience would be like with a direct primary care doctor, such as yourself? Like, what would the experience be if they met with you for the first time? 
Well, first of all, um, it's interesting that you say that, that the older generation remembers, uh, because I hadn't thought about that yet, because I don't feel as old as I am. Um, and I <laughs> nobody grew, does. I grew up in that small town, so I that's all I knew. But you're right. And they've done studies that that show that people don't really know even what family medicine does, let alone direct primary care. Um, I think the most shocking thing to people right away is the fact that I either answer the phone or uh, and or that they can get a new patient appointment within two weeks. Uh, and so often the next day, I mean, really, if um, depending on you know how the week is or whatever, but but certainly within two weeks, we can 100 percent guarantee that even a new patient can be seen and that are because direct primary care doctors, instead of having 1,500 to 2,000 patients on our panel, you know, and some some super busy full-time primary care docs in the corporate world have 3,000. Mm -hmm. Most primary care docs in corporate America don't do full-time because if you're seeing patients 36 to 40 hours a week, then you're working 80 to 100 hours a week. So most primary care docs need to scale back their patient contact hours in order just to get all the paperwork done and still see their family uh, families. So I think the the unrushed appointments, the fact that I can meet people at the door, open the door for them and say, hey, welcome in uh, and then spend, you know, generally 45 minutes to an hour with people. Uh, I try to respect people's time to, and, and realize that I'm more curious maybe than they want me to be in that moment. So I always say, hey, do you have a hard stop at 30 minutes or whatever? Because I realize most people are planning for the doc only to see them for eight to 10 minutes. And so a lot of people have another appointment at the top of the hour and they don't realize that I've allotted an hour if they want. So I think those easy access to me, personalized access and unrushed appointments have been the things that shock people the most. Um, and I've actually been questioned. Uh, I know it's shocking to people because I've actually been questioned if I'm a real doctor. Uh, so I went. So I went and found. I, I went and found that I didn't actually any longer have my diplomas from medical school and stuff. So I ordered new ones and got them framed so people could see. No, really, I graduated and I did fellowship and I'm board certified twice. You know, so I love that. So um, you know, again, we met because I was looking for direct primary care. I ended up with kind of a hybrid doctor who does some through insurance and some some direct. So I, I'm in a hybrid situation, but. Very similarly to what you described, the first time I went in and saw him, because he's an internal medicine doctor, I was so shocked that he actually had an interest in me mm -hmm. and not, I mean, and not just that, you know, that little checklist of questions and boom, 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 I'm going to write you a prescription, I'm going to send you to a specialist, I'm going to get you the heck out of here, that, I mean, it was, it was overwhelming to me, and I, I walked out of there, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what we are supposed to get um, yeah. when we go see a doctor. Because I think that when you have a relationship with your patients, you can see things, you can hear things that they're telling you that they might not even recognize yet. Right. Um, and you can also understand the um, underlying factors, the environmental factors, a lot of things that they just don't have the time to tell a normal doctor Right. In, in corporate medicine, because again, the time restraints are so small. Those windows are so small. They really are. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think for, for me in corporate medicine, I was realized, I ultimately realized it was, it felt to me a system where nobody could win. 
you know, I, I was working as hard as I possibly could and still felt like I wasn't doing the kind of medicine I knew I could. So I wasn't helping people in the way I could. The MAs were nervous to let me say yes to any extra appointments because then they wouldn't make it to lunch on time or to daycare on time. You know, um, my kids were sick of being the last, you know, they'd say such kind things, but like, mom, do you think it's possible that one day a week we could be not the last ones at daycare? Uh, and you know, my friends are, my friends and I are texting each other. Are you going to make it by six? Are you, can you grab Genevieve? You know? Um, and, and then the, you know, then my husband wasn't happy because I was taking longer than I was allotted with each patient. So patients were unhappy because they were waiting in the lobby, but also that meant I had zero time to chart at work because I was constantly um, doing the FaceTime thing. And I, I would then chart until the wee hours and, you know, and then I knew that wasn't good for my health. So I went from a system where nobody was really winning to a system where everybody wins. Like the patients are happy. I'm happy. My kids are happier. Uh, and you know, my husband's still scared, but he's more or less, I mean, I think he must be happy that I cook dinner regularly and send him off to, to work with his lunch. <laughs> I love that. You know, I think you brought up a really important point because any system should be set up with win-win. So, uh, I mean, I know that I want my providers to be happy and not overwhelmed right. and frustrated. So I think that when that's the case, then you're able to provide better care. Right. So I think it, it, it is win-win. Here's something that I've noticed quite a bit um, in looking at um, DPC practices when I'm you know, working with my employers is a lot of them are set up only with nurse practitioners instead of doctors with an MD such as yourself and board certified, et cetera. And I think this is confusing to some people. So can you explain the differences, like what would be the, the differences in the services that a nurse practitioner could provide as opposed to you? It seems like a straightforward question, and it's it's actually tricky. Um, and you'll get, you'll get uh, nurse practitioners and physicians on you know to like you'd get a totally different answer if you if you asked a nurse practitioner. Um, but I think the thing is, not all doctors are are made equal, and not all nurse practitioners are made equal. Uh, the training programs are very different. Uh, but I have several good friends who are nurse practitioners and um, one of them is a, is a manager of lots of nurse practitioners. And what she has said that's been echoed by others is that now that the nurse practitioner education and training requirements are so different, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a practicing RN for years before you go to, to advanced nurse practitioner school and become an a ARNP. So you don't necessarily have to have any clinical experience before you do this much shorter education and training stint to be out in primary care. So I would say the difference is when you, when at, at the base level, when you see an MD or a DO or a naturopath, you know that they've had X length of training, they've had to take certain standardized tests and they've had to do, at least with the MD DO route, they've had to do a residency and then if you check whether they are board certified, you know that they not only completed their residency, but they they passed the test that says you learned what you were supposed to learn in that right. residency. Um, and so if you get a, 
if you get an ARNP who has, you know, who used to be an ICU nurse, you know, and was doing that for a decade and then went to nurse practitioner school and applied all of that energy into his or her studies and then did a fellowship because you can do an ARNP fellowship and then they're seeing patients, that clinician in a standalone practice is going to be different than somebody who graduated from college went through, got ARNP, even got a doctorate of nurse practitioner, right? And so now is calling him or herself Dr. So-and-so, which I think is confusing to people. Not that they don't deserve to be a doctor if they have a doctorate, but it's it's confusing to patients, I think. It is, it is. Um, so if they're, you know, so I think you just have to, you need to have a connection with your clinician to, to I think, make the best positive change. So that part's really important. And then after that, I think, you need to just educate yourself as, as a patient about the person that you're choosing to take advice from um, because the, the backgrounds, the education, they're very different. And a physician has just more breadth of experience. And we were taught about the zebras as opposed to being taught just about the common stuff. So I always tell, I often tell patients, I'm, I'm here listening to you. The most common thing that, that your symptoms represent would be this in the context of your lifestyle and this and that, but I'm required to think about the things that could kill you. And right. so I want to at least, in, I want to at least entertain those in my mind. I don't need to share them all with you. <laughs> don't need to create stress, but I need to entertain them in my mind, do tests and things to rule those out. And then we can go back to focusing on what it's most likely to be. And I, I've had a lot of my nurse practitioner friends say, I don't feel comfortable with that part. I don't, I don't always know what I don't know. That's a great answer. I like that. Okay. So now somebody is, um, they're, they're your patient everything. You've got a great relationship with them and you identify a zebra. Okay. There's now this person that needs some additional care, uh, possibly a specialist. How does that, how does that handoff work? Do you stay involved? I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So, uh, this is going to evolve over time, I think, but on the most basic level, I'm still a board certified family doc who has connections in the community. And since I've been here for, you know, a long time now, um, I, I have some of my favorite specialists. And as a direct primary care doctor, I get to refer to whoever I think is awesome. I don't have any constraints from corporate saying we really need you to focus your referrals on these specialists, right? Because um, that's one of the ways that corporate medicine makes money. They they have a bunch of primary care docs and they encourage us to. Um, so anyway, I get to choose who I refer to. And then because I'm doing that, uh, I get to generate a referral letter now that says, you know, this is the patient. This is, you know, I'm referring to you, Mr. or Mrs. Specialist. Uh, the, the question I'm asking is this. And the brief history is this, uh, that's how I was taught to do referrals. Um, and, and I remember training in residency and having a pulmonologist actually say to me as we were switching, cause I'm old enough that we were switching to EMRs when it all came to be. And I remember him saying, I don't even know what this doc wants me to like, I don't know what question this doc has because they're with the, with the computer generated referrals that go through a referral center, which is God knows where nobody really knows who that human is. It could be Yoda. We don't know. Um, then it gets to the specialist. Often by the time the, the patient is sitting in front of the specialist, the specialist doesn't know why the patient is even there. 
So referrals within the direct primary care community are so much more valuable in my opinion because it's a doc-to-doc -doc communication. So it's at the very least a much more informative letter. And then yeah, I actually, since I'm referring to people that I know, like, and trust, I can call them up. One of the pulmonologists that I used to work with actually at MultiCare, he, oh, sorry. Well, anyway. That's all right. Um, <laughs> he, he said, you know, Aaron, what is it that you're doing again? And uh, I thought you were one of us still and no. And then he said, you call me anytime. Yeah. You know? So that I have those relationships with, with community docs. And so um, it actually works out better. I think now for my patients than it did uh, before. I love that. So, okay. So we're going to take, we got to now break this apart. People are okay. used to, people are used to traditional insurance. They pay a premium then they pay more money because they have co-pays when they go to the doctor. They pay more money because they have a deductible. They pay more money because they have co-insurance, but they do have an overall protection. So they have an umbrella of protection, which is which is the maximum annual out-of-pocket. That mm -hmm. says that's the most amount of money you can spend in a year. But that insurance also says where you can go for your doctors most of the time, who you can see for a specialist, where you can get your lab work done. And most people don't question that. They mm -hmm. just follow along the path that has been laid out for them. So it works differently with direct primary care because they're paying a essentially a membership fee. We'll call it that subscription yeah. fee, whatever we want to call it. It's a flat um, dollar fee per month that they pay for access to you. Mm -hmm. So then when they do make an appointment, whether in person or virtually, they're not paying anything additional. Right. Um, so, and I don't know if your practice does this, but many do. It does include a certain level of lab work that comes in within that as well. So often that is is part of the package. But then we just talked about going to a specialist. Well, the specialist isn't in your direct, isn't part of the direct primary care situation, nor is a hospital, nor is an anesthesiologist. So in other parts of the country, Again, Washington is a little challenging in our in our rules, but in other parts of the country, it's often direct primary care is often paired with what's called medical cost sharing. Mm -hmm. We don't have much of it around here. Right. Um, so again, we have to look at, okay, how can we still make this available to people and still provide that protection? So what I see being a specialist in benefits and medical insurance is that people will often choose a high deductible health plan that has a maybe a $10,000 maximum out of pocket. So they do have that protection for those big expenses, but they rarely use it because they're prim primarily going to you. So um, what do you see with your clients and what kind of things are they doing? So direct primary care does you know, it is a great uh, situation for, well, I would argue everybody, but, uh, but for people who are completely uninsured, it's a fabulous absolutely way to go, right? Because you can get an affordable doctor in a predictable way so that you don't have any surprise bills coming up. Because, uh, you know, if you say that, that uninsured person, we do want to do labs or something, even, you know, the direct primary care movement sort of came to be for all the reasons that we've talked about, like bring the humanity back to medicine, bring health back to medicine. Um, but also people were recognizing that there were costs that were ridiculous in, in, and shouldn't exist in the primary care world, right? So I had no idea that to order sort of a pretty standard annual lab 
package, instead of being hundreds of dollars, is actually less than fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I just truly didn't know. And my friends, my doctor friends, I'm like, "Did you know you can get a complete blood count for six bucks?" They're like, "No way!" You know, uh, I mean, we're really blown away because we've never seen prices like that. You know, even for physicians in corporate medicine, the the price transparency issue, we we. We asked for it. We fought for it. It it's, continues to be a struggle. Um, so it's an affordable thing if you don't have insurance. But then, like you said, I, I always encourage people to have some kind of insurance because you just can't. Not, tomorrow's not guaranteed, right? Um, and yeah, uh, where am I going? Where am I going with this? So most of my patients have insurance. Most of them have switched, you know, as they decided, oh yes, we really, really like this. They've switched to a high deductible plan like the following year, right? When you, when they can uh, re-enroll or open enrollment. Um, and then they, they enjoy that predictability of, you know, me letting them know, Hey, I think we should go to this specialist or that. Um, and, they can have a negotiated price for that. So as, as I move along in, in my DPC practice, I'm like, I'm working with physical therapy offices right now to say, what is your, what is the DPC contracted rate that my patients can get? Right. Because uh, even if they have insurance, they should be able to pay a, a price. And since the, the specialist can then bill my clinic and they know that they aren't going to have to spend time, energy, money, uh, tracking down payments and things. They're just going to pay. They're going to bill me. I'm going to pay them. I'm going to collect from the patient. Then there's just all that cost transparency that is good for everyone and helps lower the cost because it's so much more direct to consumer. Yeah. Um, you bring up a really good point because with the new laws that have passed um, with price transparency becoming more and more mandatory, even though some hospitals are refusing to comply, not here in Washington, fortunately, but most people don't know that you can go to the hospital website and look at the cost of cash pay versus whatever your insurance is. And one thing I encourage my clients to do all the time is even though you have insurance, you need to price things out. You Mm -hmm. need to see what the cash pay price is for a medication versus running it through your insurance. It's shocking to people. It's shocking. Right. Right. Sometimes it's a tenth of the cost. Right. Same thing with labs that you talked about. There is a um, organization, again, isn't here in Washington yet, but it's called Green Imaging. And so so they do a lot of the um, major imaging and they do it for a fraction of the cost. Mm -hmm. So as I think that people are more empowered once again to make decisions that are good for their own health and for their own budget, that um, I think DPC, the it's going to continue to rise and that we will have better ways to wrap around it. It's great Mm -hmm. in an employer plan, especially a self-funded plan, because you can carve it out, you can build it in, you can still have all the insurance protections, but we don't have great ways other than a high deductible health plan for individuals. So those are things we have to continue to keep pushing for and lobbying for. But um, yeah, I love that. Okay, so you already answered that question. You pretty much answered. Okay, well, one more before we move on to the end. Okay, you already addressed the fact that you have three young children, a spouse, a dog, didn't know about the dog, um, and a thriving medical practice. How do you balance it all out and still have time for yourself? Uh, my friend was asking me that yesterday, too. 
Like, how do you compartmentalize? Um, I actually, I think uh, I got better at this because I actually started a network marketing company in with uh, with a network marketing company in 2017, and I credit that experience with me being in DPC at this point anyway, right? Because I learned so much about myself. It started me on this personal development journey. Uh, I learned that, you know, I learned about the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, which I think wasn't addressed a whole lot in uh, medical school. Uh, and I learned that that we we really can have control over what we allow ourselves to think about, you know? So I, and I'm getting better at time blocking. You know, they say, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, right? Because, you know, and, and I'd already had the experience in college of the semester that I was gonna take the classes that, that weed out those who get to go to medical school and those who don't. And I thought, okay, well, I was paying for college myself. So I was waiting tables um, and I thought, okay, I better not, and I was doing intramural sports and, you know, all the things. I've always been overly busy, overly scheduled. So that's just maybe me. But at this point, I thought, oh, I better really buckle down. It was my worst semester ever. And I think it was, I still made it, obviously. Uh, but it was the most stressful semester for me. Uh, and I think it was because I didn't have that structure that said, this is your three-hour window to get this done. If you don't do this, then you're not going to have, you're not going to be prepared for your midterm. And, you know, um, but waiting tables also gave me an outlet, right? It wasn't, I wasn't 24 seven thinking about what was on my to-do list. Right, right. So I honestly think, you know, two businesses, three kids, you know, sometimes it's overwhelming. And then yesterday I told my child I was overwhelmed and she said, Mom, sometimes I get like that too. And I oh, and I no. and I said, Oh, okay, well, what do you do when you get overwhelmed? And she said, Well, I mean, I come to you for ideas. And then, you know, sometimes I take a deep breath and then I just think, okay, what's one thing I can do right now? So I said, Okay, well, I'm coming to you for advice, then what should I do? And she said, Okay, mom, I think what you should do is work really hard for an hour. Focus, you know, after we go to school, you just work really hard for an hour, and then I think you should Peloton or do yoga and then work for another hour, you know? <laughs> so, um, so I think too, my family and I communicate enough about all the balls that we have in the air. Um, and we do family meetings. So, you know, we just, I we love try that. to, we try to be proactive. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, <clears throat> all right. You made it. You made it through all the tough stuff. Woo! Well, maybe some people think the last part's the toughest. But I actually think the last part's harder. We <laughs> <laughs> get to ask the, my five burning questions. So my favorite question that I have to ask everybody, because of course it ties into the name of my show is what is your absolute favorite food in the world? And can you cook it? So this brings me to the fact that I'm an Enneagram nine and um, making choices is sometimes really challenging. And people joke about how it is I can have a job where I need to make decisions all the time. Um, maybe that's why I'm so good at, um, informed patient decision making, <laughs> but, um, as cheesy as it is, I thought about this in terms of what is the one group of food that I could never, would never want to have to go without. And it was a toss up between pasta dishes and salads, because as much as I enjoy all food, 
when I'm feeling, um, I'm most likely to crave a salad. Like if I indulge in junk food or go on a road trip or whatever, but I love the salads you get at restaurants. And the one that lives in memory from the East Coast was this thinly sliced. It came as a square and it had this reduced balsamic fig vinegar over it. And I can't make it because I've tried, but it was this thinly sliced watermelon, which I don't even love, thinly sliced manchego, and then a stack of arugula. And there were three layers of that. So oh my was, God, that sounds beautiful. amazing. It was beautiful. It was clean. It was filling. It was amazing. And I've tried to make it and I can't. Okay. Well now that's going to be in my head. I'm going to have to try and make it. <laughs> <laughs> sounds so good. Yeah. Sounds so good. I love watermelon and arugula together and I love manchego. So I know, and I love fig balsamic. So like it's yeah, all the I things. I mean, really like it was just so creative and amazing. And yeah. Yeah. It's all the things. All right. So what's the one character trait you admire most in other people and why? I And again, I, there's so many, but I want to say confidence. Um, you know, probably I have struggled with being confident my whole life. So I see that in others and I just think, wow. But I love those quotes. I, I don't know if it's Audrey Hepburn or whatever, like, right? Like beauty comes from the inside and and I have, um, you know, I'm raising two daughters and a son, and I recently read a study that girls want to be thinner than they are starting at age six. Uh, and a lot of that comes from their mothers. Um, and I just, I have a friend who, it doesn't matter what she's wearing, and she's she's got pendulous breasts, and she wouldn't mind me saying this, um, she, what, whatever she's wearing, she stands like her, you know, she walks like her, she stands like her, she sits like her, she's not picking at her clothes. She, you know, she's just comfortable in her own skin, very confident in who she is. Doesn't mean she doesn't have doubts, doesn't, you know, um, as you get to know her, but she's, but she knows her worth as a human being and, and it's just beautiful. I love that. Okay. So now I get to flip the mirror on you and say, what's the one character trait that you are most proud of and why? Uh, I think I struggle to come up. Uh, I, eh. I, what I have decided is that um, I have a natural ability to see both sides of arguments. And so that has been a blessing and a curse in my life. Uh, but I remember even with as a young kid, my older sister saying, why are you always taking mom and dad's side? I'm like, I'm not. I'm just trying to help you understand where they're coming from. You know, like I I totally get where you're coming from. And I, you know, so that, that ability to, um, I don't know that it's even open-minded. I think I just, I can just kind of naturally see both sides. I love that. Okay. So now you get to put on your doctor hat for a second. Okay. If you could give people one piece of advice to improve their health, what would it be and why? I think hands down, the evidence is pretty um, solid now that happy people live longer. So if you are going to focus on one thing, I would say focus on improving your own happiness. And there are tons of resources for that. Um, there are tiny little, oh, I wish I had brought mine up here. Um, there are five-minute daily practices. Uh, I don't have an affiliate link to the five-minute journal. I should at this point see if they'll give me an affiliate link to the five-minute journal. Um, but you know how you, um, like if you're shopping for a car and you 
you had never, you thought you were unique or, or picking a name for your kid. You thought it was unique. And then you realize like my parents did their five other baby errands in the nursery. When your conscious mind tells your subconscious mind, you're interested in something, uh, it starts to see it everywhere. So if you have a gratitude practice and you actually just write down three things you're grateful for every day, there's really good evidence that you will start to then see your, your, your brain knows, Oh, she's interested in what, what things are good, what, what are good things in her life, what are, you know, or his life. And, and so I think more than eating the right things, there aren't right and wrong things anyway, but more than all those things you would expect me to say, I would, I would say the evidence is be happy. I love that. Um, uh, Esther said, follow your bliss. And I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually had, it was toward the end of my last season. I had, um, uh, a guest on, and she has written a book about happiness, about all the different types of happiness there are, because a lot of times we don't recognize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was really interesting. I'm gonna have to send you that link and be really yeah, that'd be awesome. you'd like it. Okay. I love this question. Uh, what is your secret talent or something people would be surprised to learn about you? I think people would be surprised to learn that I know how to uh, construct a brick wall. <laughs> Like I mentioned, my dad was a day laborer, uh, and so I was a hot carrier from a very early age. Uh, I love so, yeah, it. I can I can make a brick wall. I don't ask me to do an entire fireplace because there's you know physics and things involved, and no, but I can do the wall. Well, you can do the wall. I can tie rebar. So um, my yeah, husband no. made me help, and we had to do our whole driveway. So the the, the secret <laughs> skills that we have. Okay, last question. Who is the one person, famous or otherwise, maybe an author, a podcast, could be whatever, that you would most like to meet and sit down and have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine with? Again, the decision-making thing was is so, so hard. But you know what? I would love, love, love to talk to Matt Damon. Oh, Why? So, so many reasons. I mean, he is, you know, he's avidly giving back, you know, Um, he's a busy guy too. And he's managed to keep his family mostly out of the spotlight. He clearly, as clearly as someone who has no idea what's going on in Matt Damon's life can, you know, but he just seems like a good person for whom fame has not changed him fundamentally. Uh, and I would, I would like to know his take on, you know, the world and, and how to, how to be a better human and all all the things I just, I, ever since Goodwill Hunting, I've just thought, man, this man, this man's mind is focused on the good and, and is, is, oh, and he narrated Howard Zinn's, um, the other reason is he narrated Howard Zinn's, uh, The People's History of the United States, because he just loved Howard Zinn and loved that um, alternate perspective on the history of the U.S. And, and I loved that book. And then I loved listening to Matt Damon read it. And so that, that plays into it too. I love it. All right. So if people want to learn more about your practice, focus, health, health, DPC, I was, I was going to say that I'm like, am I saying that right? Uh, focus health DPC um, or about DPC in general, how would they get in touch with you? So um, hopefully uh, the links will be, but it's, it's www.focushealthdpc.com, but you can also hopefully 
uh, Google, you know, Aaron Callock, Dr. Tacoma, uh, and, and I would come up. That's the hope with the Google searching, right? Uh, more about DPC would be uh, dpcfrontier.com or dpcalliance.org. Uh, the AAFP, the American Academy of Family Physicians, has info as well. Um, and I am working on building a Instagram and Facebook uh, presence. So by all means, if you guys want to support my, uh, my very novice efforts in that, I would love it. Awesome. Well, I would like to thank everybody. I found this personally to be one of my most fascinating guests. So thank you so much, Erin. And I look forward to seeing everyone else next week. And until next week, make it a great day. Thank you so much.